church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you this week. I hope you're doing well. Well, we have a great show lined up for you today. That was Universal by Jacob and Matthew. For more information about Jacob and Matthew, stop by my website at www.catholichack.com. Well, before we begin today's show, and we are going to be jumping right back into where we left off about a month ago in our study of A Father Who Keeps His Promises by Dr. Scott Hahn. And again, you can pick up a copy of that at catholichack.com as well. But I wanted to share with you a couple of quick points about some activities and some opportunities that are coming up. On March 5th, I'm going to be giving a talk on shame and continence from John Paul II's Love and Responsibility. There is a talk series about this entire book. Every single page of it is going to be covered through a series of talks uh, started by Father Sam Medley, a salt priest out of Corpus Christi. And for more information on that, you can, as always, you guessed it, stop by my website at catholichack.com. But my, my talk on shame and continence will be on March 5th, and that will be live over the internet, so you can, you can watch that live from anywhere on the planet. 
On March the I'm saying yeah, March the 20th rather, I will be giving a talk at the Catholic Men's Conference in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be talking about my conversion, how God saved me from the addiction and the struggle of pornography and sexual license. And uh, so come and join me if you can. If you're anywhere near San Antonio, Texas on March 20th, uh, I would love to see you there. The Pilgrim Center of Hope is the one sponsoring that event, and you can find a link as always on my site. And as well as on April the 24th, I also have another opportunity to give my testimony to speak at another men's conference. This time it'll be in New Hampshire, in Exeter, at St. Michael Parish. St. Michael the Archangel Parish there in Exeter, New Hampshire, is, is hosting a men's conference, and I will be delighted to be a part of that. All that information can be found at catholichack.com. All right. Well, we've got a lot of material to cover and not a lot of time to cover it in. So let's just go ahead and get started. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glorious and powerful and almighty God, we humbly come before you and we just seek your name, dear Father. We call upon your name and not our name today. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit that you will inspire us to dive deep into your sacred word. And you will just teach us what we need to know. Inspire us. Enliven our faith, dear Father, that we might go forth and share that faith with all the world. We wish to evangelize for your truth, for your church, the Catholic Church, the family that you have founded, the created, that you sent your only begotten Son to give us through the sacraments. We also pray, especially we ask you for your mercy upon those suffering in Haiti. May you provide for their many needs. Send forth your angels or your saints on earth and provide for their many needs, dear Father. We pray and ask our dear lady to intercede for them and for all who are suffering tonight. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, I want to just just recap what where we were when we left off in this series. Basically, we were covering chapter 4 of A Father Who Keeps His Promises, and where we left off was Cain had killed Abel, and he did so out of envy. And God marked Cain with a mark that's very similar to the mark found in the book of Revelation, that mark of Satan. So nobody could harm Cain. They were actually afraid of Cain because of this mark. So God marks Cain with this, and he he goes out, and he starts an evil line through a son. And he, he actually sets up a city and names the city after his son. And that line of Cain comes to its its ultimate evil culmination through Lamech, who also is a murderer, and takes to himself two wives. That was the first instance of polygamy in Scripture, which we know to be evil and inappropriate, not in the same vein that God created marriage through Adam and Eve, the very first couple that we saw in Genesis 2 and 3. Okay, also, Adam and Eve, they bear yet another son. They call him Seth. Now, this one is different than the rest because here we see that he was made in the image and likeness of Adam, just like Adam was made in the image and likeness of God. So it's very striking and it's also very, very important. Now, Seth, unlike Cain, Seth calls upon the name of God. 
not the name of himself, or setting up a city under his own name. See, this is where we start this play on name. The Hebrew name, uh, the Hebrew word for name is Shem. And this is a very, very important point that you must keep track of because this will affect the rest of salvation history. And it is uh, very much important for today's conversation as well. But so, so Cain called upon his own name or the name of his son and Shem, who's made in the image and likeness of Adam, like Adam was made in the image and likeness of God, uh, calls upon God's name. It's a stark difference. So there's two lines now. There's a good line and there's a bad line. And so basically what we see then is the, the good line intermarrying into the bad line. This is really a, not a good thing at all. As they wish, they also took as they wish, which means polygamy entered into the good line. And what happens is they give, uh, they bear the the children that are then called the the sons of the men of renown. Basically, now all lines, the good line and the bad line, are both evil now. And so it's very important that we understand this play on the word Shem, the name, and we see the stark contrast between the good line and the bad line. And basically that leads us up to the point where God is, is pretty much fed up. He's had enough of, of all of this, uh, this, you know, evilness, this, it, this evil in the hearts of men that's now corrupted even the good line, the line of Seth who called upon the name of God. And just to quote where we're at and where we left off, on page 83 of chapter 4 of A Father Who Keeps His Promises, Dr. Hahn says, quote, In this first instance of judgment, God declared his refusal to allow the seed of the woman, the righteous family of God, to be commingled with, with and infused with the family of Satan. And so he sent a disastrous flood to wipe out the human family, with the exception of one covenant household the family of Noah. This was to be the righteous remnant through which God would save the world, even if the father had to start all over again from scratch. His promises would surely come to pass. And so God decides he's going to wipe out everybody. But he sees Noah, and Noah, who is from the line of, of Seth, actually is a righteous man. In his generation, he is a stark contrast from all those who surround him in the world. He actually does seek after God and the righteousness. And so God says, okay, Noah, I'm going to use you to restart everything. So in the beginning, we saw with Adam and Eve that they were the first couple. Adam was the mediator of the covenant. And so now we've progressed to Noah. And Noah is actually uh, the, the covenant mediator as well, but he is now not just a couple, but he's a household, a family, a household of families, because he enters the ark with his sons and his son's wives, along with his own wife. Now, what's interesting here is when you read Genesis, what's really going on is Genesis, the stories that are related in Genesis were being recounted to the people of Israel in the wilderness. Because as they were brought up out of the, uh, the slavery in Egypt, the bondage of Egypt, which again is very important for today's discussion. So remember that. We're going to get back to that in a moment. As they're brought up out of bondage from Egypt, they have to be told why this is happening to them. You see, they'd been in a slavery for some 430 years, and they just don't remember, you know, any of their, their previous history as a people. God had to remind them, where did you come from? Why are you here now? What will I ask for of you when I send you into the land of Canaan, 
All of that is critical because it sets the stage. It gives context to what will happen next. The the taking back of the land from Canaan, the promised land. And from the outsider, we read the Old Testament and we see how the people of Israel were ordered to go in and wipe out these and, and domesticate these, these Canaanite people or Canaanite people. That seems rather brutal, doesn't it? I mean, but something more is going on here. And we're going to get into that in a bigger way. But I just wanted to set the stage and sort of let the, let you understand that when you read Genesis, this is a telling of the story after the fact. This was recounting these events to the people of Israel as they're in the wilderness before they head into the promised land. Okay. Now, as we saw, as we said before, Noah is now the household. He has progressed from a couple in Adam and Eve, and now he is a household of families. And so this this is covenant mediatorship is very important for our discussion, because as we understand Noah to be a new Adam. Oh, yeah. Just like in the, the first creation, Adam, you know, was was brought forth from the land and he was started the, the, the human race. And so Noah will be brought forth as we saw in the first covenant, the first creation, creation came forth from the waters of the abyss. The spirit hovered above it. Now we see with Noah that also the waters from the waters comes land once again, and once again, man will be repopulated on the earth through Noah and his seed. So we see very clearly of what's going on here is that Noah is a new Adam, and there is a new creation if there is a new Adam. We're going to see that theme over and over again. It comes to its pinnacle in Jesus Christ when he recreates creation and we see that in John chapter 1 uh, in particular. However, um, we're not going to get there yet. We're going to start with Noah first and move through salvation history. So we see that uh, just as Adam had the significance of sevens, seven days and rest and blessings and the command to multiply, to fill the face of the earth, so too do we see that same thing going on uh, in Noah and the creation that's happening again through the flood waters. And again, I'm going to quote at length here because I think it's very important for us to understand what Dr. Hahn is getting at. On page 84 of chapter 4, we hear from Scott Hahn, quote, Chosen by the Father to embody and deliver the remnant of the human race, Noah was called to refound God's family like a new Adam. Interestingly, the description of God's flood judgment is notably similar to the pattern of divine creation in the coming chapters of Genesis. In both cases, a new world would emerge from the chaotic waters of the deep. The number seven also stands out prominently in both accounts as the sign of God's rest at creation. It is closely linked to Noah, whose name, by the way, means rest or relief. Likewise, Noah was ordered to take seven pairs of clean animals into the ark, which he did before closing the door. After seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. And in the seventh month, the ark came to rest upon Mount Ararat. After a long wait, Noah sent out a dove every seven days until his family was finally able to disembark. After disembarking, Adam's divine commission was repeated for Noah. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God also restored Noah to Adam's former position of dominion over the beast. Finally, the father renewed the creation covenant with Noah, revealing to him the sign of the new covenant. 
I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And that's Genesis 9, 13. So I need you to go back and read Genesis chapter 6 through 10. Very clearly, this is where we're drawing all the meat of our material. And this sets the stage for the conflict between the good line and the bad line, as we said, as well as this, this new creation. And again, we're going to see the good line and the bad line again. It's going to come back and haunt us here next. So we see Noah is the new Adam, and this is a new creation. But like, just like the, the last creation under Adam, there was a fall. And so we know that under a new creation, there must be a, another fall. Why? Because history often repeats itself. And because man is sinful now because of Adam. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. We have this concupiscence, this desire that we're, we're geared to sin. And without the grace of God and the seeking of God's name continually, we fall prey to our sinful nature. And we see that the new Adam, Noah, does so here in Genesis. He falls once again in Genesis 9, uh, 20 through 28. Basically, here's what happens. We see in Genesis 3, there's a garden, there's fruit, there's nakedness, there's sin, and then there's a curse that's given. And we see also in Genesis 9, there's a, a garden, a vineyard, there is fruit, there's nakedness, there's sin, and there's another curse, exactly the same. So it, it's by no mistake that that's happened. Now, here's what's going on. I'm going to quote page number 88 real quick. And According to some ancient rabbinic and patristic interpretive traditions, this oracle points forward to Israel's future conquest and subjugation of Canaan. Okay, that's going to set the stage for what I'm going to read you now. This is a critical piece of passage from, this, from Genesis 9 because it's kind of uh, complex and it's on the surface it seems to say one thing, but in reality it's really another. Genesis 9, uh, starting in verse 20, quote, Noah was the first tiller of the soil. He planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Jephthah told, uh, took a garment, rather, and laid it upon their shoulders, and walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves, shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. God enlarge Jephthah, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. Okay, now, Noah, when he entered the ark, he had sons. Those sons were, were Ham, Jephthah, and Shem. Now, Shem, that's the Hebrew word for name. Okay, this is very significant. Again, that play on words between of the name of Cain, uh, Cain uh, seeking after his own name, setting up a city under his son's name, and that line is a bad line, and then Seth seeking the name of God. Okay, name is very important in salvation history. And here Noah has a son named Name, or Shem. That's, by the way, where we get Semite from. It came from this word Shem, or the name Shem. The people of Israel of Israel were descendants, are descendants, 
uh, of this line of Shem. They are called Semites. And so when you hear anti-Semites, those are people against the line of, 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 of Shem. Or Jews, or and they're just not Jews, there's others too. But you, at least you now know where it comes from. So Shem is a good son. Ham turns out to be not so good. What does he do? Okay, as soon as they, they have this covenant blessing, they, they survive the flood, they disembark Noah, this ark, okay, and God sets a bow in the sky, he pronounces blessings on Noah and his sons, and says that I'm going to rebuild all of human the human race with you, Noah, and your sons. Now go forth and multiply and fill the face of the earth. Well, Noah goes about the business of fulfilling that, that command by God. He sets up a, va- a vineyard. He creates a vineyard. And what do, what do vineyards do? They, they grow uh, uh, grapes, they, you know, from the vine. And he makes wine and he drinks it to excess. He gets drunk, basically, and he lies naked in his tent, right? Okay. Well, when Ham says he looked upon the nakedness of his father... Doesn't that seem strange? I mean, that does not really that big of a deal. I mean, haven't hasn't everybody seen their father naked, at least in some respect, in some kind? I mean, could that really be a sin? Well, according to Dr. Hahn in, a, in his book, A Father Who Keeps His Promises, and even better, in an article he wrote called Noah's Nakedness and the Curse of Canaan. And I'll put a link to this. You can find this uh, online. It's a really interesting article. It, it doesn't really mean the nakedness of the father. A father's nakedness, as we find in other places in Scripture, is referring to uh, Ham's mother. Okay, now Ham had a son. His his name was was Canaan or Canaan. It depends on how you pronounce that. So Ham, the father of Canaan, the son of Noah, goes into his tent when his father is naked and drunk and looks upon the nakedness of his father, meaning his mother. And that means he has an ancestral relationship. We see this again happening further on in Genesis when Lot, after his wife had turned into a pillar of salt, gets drunk and his daughters looked upon his nakedness while they had relations with him because they needed to bore children because they didn't have anybody to to, uh, marry and bear children with. So Again, this article makes this a lot clearer, and I, I highly recommend that you read it. It's a very interesting read. It's also a very quick read. Ham has an ancestral relationship with his mother, and the fruit of that relationship is Canaan, this, this new son, Canaan. And now when, when Noah wakes up and realizes what's going on, because Ham went out of the tent and told his brothers what had happened, what he did, why would he do that? Why in the world would he have done that? Because he was trying to circumvent the authority of the power that a father passes down to the sons. And he was trying to take that power for himself. Because Noah was going to pass that power down to Shem. Because Shem is a good son. Ham wasn't having any part of it. Instead, he goes and tries to take it from him. And, uh, and, and he does so through relations with his mother. Now, we see an example of this. Actually, there's two other examples, but a really good one is 2 Samuel 16, 21 through 22. Now, here we see a son of King David who was upset. Absalom was upset because he knew his father was going to give the throne of the kingdom of Israel, not to him, but to one of his other brothers, one of his younger brothers. And so he, what does he do? He goes and he, he raises an army with betrayers within the Israelite army and forces his father out of the city of Jerusalem. And then he takes 
his father's concubines, his harem of women, and he brings them out into public, and he has sexual relations with them out in public. Why? Because it's sending a very clear message to the people of Israel. I am in charge. I have my father's women. I have my father's concubines. I have my father's mother. I am now in charge. And so Ham, he sets the stage for that event with Absalom there in 2 Samuel 16. Here in Genesis 9, he takes his own mother, an ancestral relationship, his father's nakedness. And so that's what we see going on here. This is a grab for power. This is, this is unbated lust and ambition. This is pure evil. This is why it's a sin. And so we see that going on there. And, and, and Noah wakes up. In fact, the Targums, which is the oral tradition of the reading of the Hebrew uh, Torah or the scrolls in the, in the synagogues, and in the Targums, it actually says that Noah found out about the sin through a dream. And when he had woken up from that dream, from his drunkenness, he went after him and he, he pronounced this curse. And we actually see this curse and Scott actually quotes this curse. It says, quote, Cursed be Canaan, a slave shall he be to his brothers. Blessed, be, blessed by the Lord, my God be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. God enlarge Jephthah, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slaves. So you see, Noah, he he's a vineyard, okay? He takes fruit, he gets drunk, and his sin is Ham having an ancestral relationship with his wife. Okay, the drunkenness helped bring that on. If he hadn't been drunk, these things wouldn't have transpired. Ham took advantage of the situation. And so sin was created. And now a curse is made. Just like the curse upon in Genesis 3, when women had to now bear and labor and pain, and Adam had to labor and toil with sweat and tears and blood, and the snake lost its, its appendages and had to crawl and eat dust. Here we in Genesis 9, we see another curse, curse upon Canaan which will then become, in the future, the Canaanite people. And the line of Shem, the good line, and now the, the bad line under Ham, will now conflict with one another repeatedly. And this is actually very profound, because we see that in the future, when the Israelite people come up out of Egypt, they are surrounded on all sides by enemies. All of those enemies are descendants from the line of Ham, the bad line. They are Egypt and Canaan, Philistia, Assyria, and Babylon. Now, there is an interesting quote here that sort of sums all that up. But basically, Ham's family is encompassed by these, these, these enemies of the people. In fact, they're enslaved by some of them. Scanon says, quote, on page 90, Old Testament history offers a blow-by-blow -blow account of Israel's ongoing abuse at the hands of Ham's wicked descendants. Israel was enslaved by Egypt, ensnared by Canaan, oppressed by the Philistines, annihilated by Assyria, and exiled by Babylon. It's like they can't catch a break. But God knows it's going to be hard work. It ain't going to be easy. But the right thing must be done. And the good line, the line of Shem, the name, the ones who seek the name of God, must endure all of that suffering. Because ultimately... Jesus will come and endure the ultimate suffering and culminate the new, in the new Adam, the new creation. 
And so this is another one of those beautiful typological moments, the foreshadowing, the hint. It's like God's whispering in our ear. Guess what's to come? I will send my son. This is kind of like that. It's really, really cool. So there's a lot going on in just a few verses that seem very strange. The nakedness of his father. Read that article from Scott Hahn. You're going to enjoy that. Now, really quickly, the Tower of Babel. Here we see the, the people culminating in, again, not seeking after the name of God, but wanting to create a name for themselves by setting up a city and building a tower into the heavens. Look at my might. And God says, if they can do this, they can, there's no stopping them. They're going to do whatever they want. But God promised he would not he would not destroy those the, the people again. He made this promise with a bow in the sky with Noah. I will never again destroy the, a mankind with a flood and devastation. No, I will now do it the hard way. And so he scatters them. He, he makes them speak foreign languages and he scatters them across the earth. Instead of wiping out mankind, God does it the hard way. I will confuse them through language babbling. A sign for the future, by the way, Acts chapter 2, and scatter them throughout the earth. And he says, quote, on page 91, in other words, God was telling Abraham or Abram, I won't wipe out my family again, not even the wicked. Instead, I will do the impossible. I will take you, a 75 year old man, and use you to bless all the families of the earth. In that way, the whole unhappy human family that has been torn apart by sin be brought back to me as their father, even the wicked. God setting the stage. He's setting the stage for what will to come. And we see that. All of those fightings among those people in the, in, the, in the Palestine and all that started right here. All of Israel's troubles right here. Do you seek the name of God or do you seek after your own name? That's the lesson we can draw most from the story of Noah and Ham. Well, that's going to do it for today's Behold the Man. I appreciate you stopping by and having a listen Stop by the website at www.catholichack.com. That's all one word, catholichack.com. And check out the show notes for the show, the links to the articles and, and everything else. Uh, if you have an opportunity to leave me a review on iTunes, I can sincerely appreciate that and thank you ahead of time. Well, until next time, I'm praying for you, so please pray for me and the people in Haiti. May God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground.